Well, good evening again here from the Monroe Church of Christ. Derek Glover with you on this wonderful Thursday evening. This is a pre-recorded. Uh, we're not live right now uh, as we work through the summer, which has its scheduling challenges sometimes. Uh, we will have some of these pre-recorded. In fact, in, in a few weeks toward the end of the month, the middle to the end of the month, I will be gone to uh, Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp where I'll be working with uh, a number of uh, people associated with that camp to have a, a session. And we're so glad to be back uh, having camp this year uh, after we were canceled last year. But I'll be there for two weeks. And so both the Sunday morning Bible studies and the midweek Bible studies uh, for those two weeks will be pre-recorded. So all four of those lessons. But they will be uh, posted at the this regular time and they will be available on our website as well as on our podcast at the uh, appropriate time, so you can check them out there. In this time, we are studying how we got the Bible, and we are already to our fourth installment of this series, uh, examining the history of our 66 books. How did they get into our hands? How did we come to have these in the form that we have them? And we will be, uh, we'll be looking at that more today. Uh, just to kind of back up and review, uh, what we've looked at so far. We've talked about the idea that these books, as we have them, are not as cut and dry as to say, well, someone wrote this down and locked it in, and that's it. We have it. It was found, or it was passed down, and then it was placed into this 66-book collection that we call the Bible. It's not quite that simple. We have to understand the history. We have to understand the culture. We have to understand the uh, linguistic uh, components of this. And so we look back in, beginning it, in the beginning with Genesis and those first five books that we talk about as being the, the books of Moses. Uh, those books were, yes, authored in part by Moses. We know he wrote some things, but there were other things written during that time too. Uh, there were other prophets who were writing. There were other uh, people given inspiration to write. And some of those things we don't have. We know they existed because we have references to them in Scripture. But we have those early, early, early writings, and they were passed down, and they were added to, and they were recopied, and they were recopied, and recopied, and added, and notes made in the margin, edits along the way, aggregated together over time. And then we, we came a couple of weeks ago to the time of King Josiah, where the law was rediscovered, what we believe to be the core elements of Deuteronomy. And then a man we call the Deuteronomist, but we believe may have been Baruch, an associate of Jeremiah, uh, took that book that was found and fleshed it out further, aggregated other sources into it, went back and edited and put together the books of Moses and then the, the book of Samuel and of Kings. And it was in this time then that the Israelites uh, were exiled or under captivity, some in Babylon, some stayed in Jerusalem, and some uh, to Egypt. And so those first five books were pretty well locked in at that point after the time of Baruch, uh, as well as Samuel, Kings, and Jeremiah, uh, because uh, Baruch was the scribe who wrote the prophecy of Jeremiah down. Then we had who we call the redactor, uh, was a writer that helped to write most of the rest or aggregate most of the rest of the Old Testament. So we begin to see as we come into what's known as the intertestamental period, which was about 400 years prior 
to the time of Christ. We have a lot of interesting things happening. Now, what we're going to talk about today doesn't have so much to do with what we see in the narrative of Scripture. We've had that element up to this point as we've talked about how the Deuteronomist put together those first eight books and how the redactor began to edit and, and put together things. But now we come to a time where there are no prophets. God's not speaking anymore. And some interesting things are happening in the world. So this is going to be more about history than it is um, necessarily about Scripture itself. Because some important things had to happen in the world in order for us to have the Bible we have today. Now here's, here's kind of the lay of the land as we reach this period of time. The uh, Israelites, God's people, uh, have been able to return. They returned some to Jerusalem out of Babylon, some returned out of Egypt. But there remain people in all those places. So the Jewish people are scattered. And the concept of God as a national God begins to broaden into something a little bit, uh, a little bit more, um, more all-encompassing. Now, in Egypt and in North Africa, we have a, a, a large population of Jewish people. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. One such uh, person, who uh, a Christian who came out of North Africa, was John Mark, um, the author or at least the uh, writer of the Gospel of Mark. We know that he is there because history tells us he was there and came from a family of wealth and prominence because they owned many properties. Oftentimes you read through the book of Acts and there are disciples meeting, there are Christians meeting, and it says they were in the home of John Mark. John Mark follow, uh, worked with Paul, he worked with other apostles, and uh, eventually with Peter, helping to write his, well, helping to take the words of Peter or the, the narratives of Peter and put them into a gospel. We, we think Peter had a lot to do with the writing of the gospel of Mark uh, in terms of being one of the sources for that gospel. So we know John Mark was a part of this group that was in North Africa or in Egypt, and there was a colony of, of, of uh, Israelites, of Jewish people in Egypt. Uh, the Coptic Church, which is the, uh, the, the Christian church of the Arabs, uh, considers John Mark to be its founder. Uh, and so there is some extra-biblical history that tells us that John Mark was a Christian who was in the Arab world at that time. So something very important happens during this period of time that changes things in the world. And it has to do with who the, the, the predominant superpower in the world is. Now, up to this point, you have many different languages in many different places. And where is the story? Where is, where is the word of God during this time? Well, we have Baruch locking in uh, the first several books of the Old Testament. We have the redactor uh, locking in the rest of those books and finalizing the edits uh, to them at, to that point. But we have the beginnings of the form of the Old Testament. But some very important things happen in the world. Number one, the uh, rise of Greece as a power. Ptolemy II uh, is the ruler over this part of the world at that time. And Greek begins to become the predominant language of, of the region and really the predominant language of the world at that time. And that's important because as we reach the time of Christ, we now have a unified language. Uh, I, when we talk about where was God during this intertestamental period, so the prophets are prophesying in all these different places, their prophecies are being written, they're being collected, they're being aggregated, 
They're being put together in a form that can be passed down, written. Uh, but, but then that ends when they return out of captivity and, and God's not speaking anymore. Well, it, it seems clear that uh, if we can, can think kind of from the perspective of God in his wisdom, which we can't understand fully, some things have to happen in the world for Jesus to come. Why did he come then? Why not before? Why not after? Well, you see the rise of Greece bringing a, uh, a central language to the land, which allowed for the transmission of these things quite easily. And then you see the rise of Rome, which brought an infrastructure and a peace and an era in which was more conducive to, to the ministry of Christ. All of those things sort of happen to bring us to Jesus. But as we're approaching that time, what's become of these writings? Well, uh, something that happens over time, over hundreds of years, is that the material this is written on begins to deteriorate. Papyrus, as you're handling it, as you're passing it back and forth, you might get 10 years out of it, and then it's got to be rewritten. Uh, and sometimes they would rewrite it, and then they would erase it, and they'd turn it sideways, and they'd write it again. We have some of these documents that we're able, with our technology, to x-ray and see layer upon layer of writing. But they would, they would write them, they would rewrite them, they would copy them, and as with most writings, as time went on, they were edited, there were things changed, there were notes made, but we began to see the aggregation of those writings up until the, the intertestamental period and through the intertestamental period. Another very important thing happens as those writings are copied and recopied. The Hebrew language gets lost. You think, how do you lose a language? Well, as so many Jews were in Egypt, uh, as time went on, the language was dropped. They weren't teaching their children Hebrew. They were teaching their children, you know, the language of the people there, the, the language of Egypt, um, Arab, Arab languages. And that gave rise to the development of the Aramaic texts and the Aramaic language uh, and, and those writings. So we see the Hebrew language begin to fall out of usage. This happens. I mean, we can look back at English. If you were to go back a thousand or more years, you could read what is English, and it doesn't look anything like English. You can't read it uh, because languages change. Words change meaning. Uh, spellings change. Have you ever noticed that in certain parts of the world that use English, maybe they spell certain words a little differently? Um, that's because language changes. Um, Gaelic is a la the language of the, the Celts uh, in, in Scotland, and there's also Gaelic in Ireland, two different languages. Uh, there's Welsh Gaelic, also a different language. But for periods of time during British rule, uh, they were not allowed to teach the language of their ancestry to their children, and so very few people speak or native Gaelic speakers today. Most speak English, and English has become a predominant language in the world. Languages get lost. Languages get set aside. They get forgotten. So Ptolemy II is in power, and he decides that it is important that we recover these texts, but we put them into a language that is usable. And so uh, he commissions. Now, this is some legend, okay? This is not, this, what I'm going to tell you right now is just the story as it's told, okay? He gets six scholars from each of the 12 tribes, and that would have, right there, that's really going to be hard to do because 
some of the tribes have disappeared at this point. We don't even know where they are, where they went. So um, he gets six scholars. This is the legend from the 12 tribes. Now that makes 72 people. Puts them all in separate tents and tells them to translate uh, and copy down the, the Old Testament writings from memory. And they work on it. And in just a short amount of time, they, they complete this. And wouldn't you know it, they all agree with one another. Uh, now, this couldn't possibly be the real history. In fact, it took much longer. And it wasn't 72 scholars from the Jewish tribes. It was probably a much greater number of people over a great many more years. But what is true about this is that we come away with a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, and it was known as the Septuagint, uh, Septuagint meaning the 70, uh, which of course there were 72, but it was called the 70. So the Septuagint becomes an accepted and welcome text among the Jews. They accept it as true and they accept it as real and legitimate. And in the course of this translating, there are also changes made, notes made in the margin, additions and subtractions from, from the text as it's translated, but the Septuagint is an important step forward because it brings the Old Testament writings into a modern language, or at least modern at the time, and now we have a Greek text, uh, and, and it's the Christians, the early Christians accepted the Greek text as well. Um, Paul quotes almost exclusively from the Septuagint. When you see Paul quoting Old Testament text in his letters, you look at the original writing and the manuscripts and, it, it, and, and the words that are used, we see that he's quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament. So it was widely accepted by the Jews and Christians alike, uh, this translation. Some important things that it was able to do. What it, uh, what it was able to do was modernize the language, and that's important because in Hebrew, there are no vowels. There's no punctuation. Uh, there's no uh, really separation between the words. It's just characters, just letters. Sometimes they're written right to left. Sometimes they're written top to bottom. There's, there's challenges. The, the, the name we have for God, uh, commonly referred to as Yahweh, is just four consonants. We don't even know how to pronounce it in and of itself. It's called the, the tetragrammaton. We don't know how to pronounce that. It's just four letters. But in, as it's translated into the Septuagint, we get now vowels inserted there. Uh, they took another name for God, uh, and they inserted it, Adonai, and they inserted the uh, vowels of that letter in between the consonants of, of the Tetragrammaton, and we get Yehovah, or Jehovah, as we call it, because we pronounce the J in English. So that's where we get the name Jehovah. Uh, and you can see this in modern translations when you see the word Lord, in all capital letters. That means we're translating it from the Tetragrammaton, from the Yahweh. And when you see it in other cases, it's Jehovah. And that's because we have different sources, some that are in Greek, some are in Aramaic, which we'll talk about in a minute, and some are in the Hebrew. Now, how do we know all this? Well, as we look back over these copies of copies of manuscripts of copies of manuscripts that are edited, we see that there are Hebrew idioms and phrases that are carried over. So we know there are Hebrew uh, sources in there. We also see Greek influences and uh, idioms and sayings and word choices carried over as well. That's important because when you translate anything, it's virtually impossible to do a word-for-word -word translation. 
many times there are words that exist in languages that just don't exist in our language or in another language. I'll use an example from the Gaelic. Um, if you, they were to refer to an umbrella, uh, the literal translation of what they call an umbrella is a, is a, is a water shield. We don't say, I bet it looks cloudy, I better take my water shield today. We call it an umbrella. Uh, so they didn't have a word for umbrella. We have a word called umbrella. So that word would change. So it would make sense for us. And all along the way as the Septuagint is developed and rewritten and continuing to be edited, those kinds of things are in there. So we see uh, a faithful translation of the Hebrew and we see the Greek text, the Septuagint, come into common usage amongst Jews and also amongst Christians. Now, it was first referred to, by the way, uh, it was first referred to as the Septuagint by uh, Augustine of Hippo, and that would have been, I think, sometime in the early AD, probably in, the, in about 300 or so. And it's around that time also that the Septuagint becomes unpopular amongst the Jews. And the reason for that was Constantine. Uh, or Constantin or Constantine, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But Constantine, um, the, the legend is that he converted to Christianity, and, and, and he may have late in his life, but he made Christianity the official language. He saw the, or the official religion uh, of, of uh, the empire. He saw a political advantage in it, and so he made Christianity the official religion. Uh, and in doing so, uh, that created a wedge and a schism between Jews and Christians for the first time. Early in the days of Christianity, the Jews and the Christians maintained a very close relationship. Christianity was still considered very much a sect of Judaism, but it becomes an official religion with Constantine, and it begins to codify the New Testament and, and all of these writings and this faith and that drives a wedge between the Jews and the Christians. And because Christians accepted the Septuagint as an authoritative uh, Old Testament, so to speak, the Jews then distanced themselves from it. They no longer accepted the Septuagint, and they went back to writing their own and developing their own um, uh, translation. And they did this by returning to the Hebrew, and they brought in another language as well, Aramaic. Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew, but it's not. It's kind of an Arabized Hebrew. So it's this new language, which was commonly spoken by many of the Jews that came out of Egypt that now had that in their history and their background. And so the Jews go back, and they begin to translate again. And they develop with uh, the Aramaic and the Hebrew and the Greek influences, and we can see all of those throughout that time uh, coming into the text that we now have, notes in the margin, edits, copies, copies of copies, all of those things come about and begin to be placed into the modernized text. And they develop something called targums. Targums were the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament. And there were many translators that we know of. Uh, and by the way, we find books of the Septuagint in the Dead Sea Scrolls in that major discovery nearly 100 years ago now. Uh, approaching 100 years since we discovered those. In some of those manuscripts, we find the Septuagint, we find the Aramaic, we find all of these different things in kind of a snapshot of the time of how the language was progressing. 
But these Targums, these Aramaic translations, began to develop um, the, the, the Jewish canon, uh, the Jewish books, the Jewish writings, um, and really develop uh, the completeness of their text. This is where we start to see the Talmud uh, be developed and, and all of the different parts of what the Jews consider to be their holy texts, all developing in this time because of this schism that was created between Jews and Christians uh, as a result of what Constantine did in making the Christian religion the official religion of the empire. So let's follow this thread now in the grand scheme because we're in this intertestamental period. And we're going to start talking about how these things got put together uh, later. Because the New Testament writings, they're a little more cut and dry because you see a letter written by Paul and it says it's written by Paul. Now that sort of clarity is the minority of, of our holy text. But you have, we'll talk some about the Gospels and how we got those. We'll talk some about the... Um, uh, the, the writings of history like Acts, but then the epistles, the rest of the epistles, we have some pretty clear indications of their authorship. Uh, and we'll talk about Revelation too. And boy, that one just barely got in. I don't know if you're aware of that, but Revelation almost didn't make it in the final cut uh, that occurred uh, in, you know, three, three years, uh, about the fourth century AD. Um, but we'll get to all that. Uh, so let's follow the thread. We have these writings that are beginning to develop in this desert nomadic people um, that we now call the Old Testament, okay? But they're writing and they're copying and they're passing down and sharing oral history. A lot of other writings are coming into the mix and also becoming extinct uh, later on. But along the way, they're discovered, they're aggregated, they're put together. We have Baruch, we, we assume, to thank for that. We have another author or aggregator that we have to thank for fleshing out the rest of what we call the Old Testament. The prophets, their writings were also put into this. It begins to be an accepted canon among the Jews. And then something changes in the world and the story has to evolve to meet that change. And that is the changing of language to Greek, the loss of the Hebrew language and the translating through various means and various writers uh, into the Greek, the Septuagint. This helped to unify the language. It helped to unify the Jewish people and later the Christians with an acceptable translation. But Constantine drove a wedge between those two groups with making Christianity official. And the Jews go back to the drawing board to rewrite their story again, now taking the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic and faithfully translating and even evolving some how their story is told. But by the time we reach Jesus, we have what amounts to a pretty stable Old Testament. We have a pretty stable collection of these writings by the time we get to Jesus. And the Old Testament canon is fairly secure uh, by that time. So we, that's where we're at. And now we're going to cross over and look to the other side of Christ at the beginnings of the writings of the Gospels, at the beginnings of the epistles, how those are put together. But that's where we stand now, following that intertestamental period. We have a unified language. We have uh, a peaceful sort of existence under one empire, Rome. And we have the ability for these writings to now be carried and transmitted and translated 
and communicated effectively. So we've got our Old Testament now. Now we've got to build our New Testament. How do those books come to be? Where do they fall? And we won't go through every one of them because it's pretty clear. We, we pretty much have dates solid and authorship solid on a great number of the New Testament books. But how do those books get to be the 66 we have in our Bible? And the, you, you, if you're Catholic and you're watching this, you say 66, you have extras. You have some extras. We call them the Apocrypha. But there's also more that aren't even in there called the Pseudepigrapha. Um, we don't have those either. But, but we'll talk about that. How did now we have these Old Testament writings, we have these New Testament writers writing in the Greek, and how does all that get translated and become what we have today? How do we get to 66 books? How is that brought about? Well, it involves uh, the Catholic Church. It involves them trying to solidify and say for sure, here's what we have. And we'll talk about that next week. And then we get into some really cool stories. There are some great stories along the way of how these things came to be. And then how do they get to our hands? How do we end up with them? All right, we'll talk about that next time. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.